You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, visit lancelambert.org. Can there be famine in the experience of a person in the will of God? In this episode, Lance teaches about spiritual famines in our lives and whether they are from God or not. Let's listen. I want um, this morning to ask a a question that may at first seem rather uh, a strange one and then um, uh, seek to um, answer it. Um, My question is, can there be a famine, uh, spiritually that is, uh, in uh, the experience of a person within the will of God? Now, I have to explain my question. Uh, Let us put it another way. Of course, we might ask ourselves, what do we mean by famine? Well, by famine, we mean a time of scarcity, a time of short supply, a time of pressure, a time of barrenness, a time when things are not just at our fingertips. They are not just all around us everywhere, but um, they're very scarce indeed. Now my question is, spiritually, is it possible in the light of God's word to ever know in our experience such a time when we are within the will of God? Or is famine always inevitably a sign that we are out of the will of God? Somewhere or other we have got out of the will of God. Now, of course, there are a number of scriptures that would suggest that. We think of the Lord's words, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have life more abundant. And then we think of that other word, um, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and in him ye are made full. Or again, we have it in um, 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 9, and I think it's verse 8, where we read this. God is able to make all grace abound unto you, that ye, having always all sufficiency in everything, may abound unto every good work. Now that seems to rule out any possibility of famine, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That seems to rule out any possibility of famine. We would therefore have to say from the scripture that famine is an inevitable evidence that we are outside of the will of God. When there is spiritual scarcity, when there is spiritual uh, a period of spiritual barrenness, when there is a, a period of spiritual difficulty, of spiritual pressure and conflict, when supplies seem to be cut off, the normal supplies seem to be cut off, then we have to say, well, it would seem that this is a very clear sign that we have taken the wrong road. We are outside of the will of God. Somewhere, perhaps, 
consciously or unconsciously, we have turned aside from the way of the Lord and we have got into a bypath. We have got ourselves into uh, a uh, wilderness. We can put it another way, our question. We can put it this way. Should not being in God's will mean never-ending abundance and fullness? Let's put it that way. Should not being within God's will mean never-ending abundance and fullness? Now I hope I've made my question clear. Uh, either um, famine is a sign, spiritual famine, or what it stands for, symbolically, is a sign that we have gone out of the will of God. Now, of course, I am not speaking of a lifelong famine. There are lives that seem to live in a perpetual state of famine. And I am not speaking about that at all. Uh, when a person is barren, absolutely barren, all the time, there is something wrong. When a person is living in the wilderness instead of the land flowing with milk and honey, there's something wrong. It's not God's idea, it's not God's plan that we should be in the wilderness uh, for very long. Uh, his plan is that we should be within the promised land, enjoying its resources and its fullness and everything that is ours in it. Now, my question is not, should we live in a state of spiritual famine? But are there times of famine that come to us when we are within the will of God and in fact are part of the will of God? Or are those times of famine that come a sign that we have got out of the way of God? Now my answer to my question uh, is very simple. My answer is one word. Yes. Um, there can be times of famine within the will of God. Bible is full of paradoxes. On the one hand, we are told that um, God is able to make all grace abound to us so that we, having all sufficiency in everything, may abound unto every good work. We're told that we can be always abounding in the work of the Lord. We have life more abundant. We have a spring that is springing up within us unto eternal life. All these things are true. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. All these things are true. But there is another side to the picture. And there can be times of famine. And far, although in some cases it may be evident that we've left the way of God, but often, far from being evidence that we have gone out of the will of God, it may be very much the will of God for us. And to run away from that time of that, or to try to evade it or avoid it, means that we get out of the will of God. Instead of staying with him, that great will for us. Now, um, I will 
mention, of course, a great example in the Bible. I want to give you a, quite a few. Uh, we'll have to be very swift. But I give you one great example that I'm going to underline first and then very swiftly give you a number of other illustrations. We had the great example of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, verse 1. Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto the land that I will show thee. And then in Acts chapter 7, uh, when Stephen was giving his great address before the Sanhedrin, he put it like this. He said that God um, said, Get thee out of thy land and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. I like that way of putting it. Come into the land. In other words, God was in the land. And he was saying, Now you get out and come to me, where I am, into the land. And then again in Hebrews 11 we are told that um, it was God's way for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to dwell in the land. Now all that seems quite clear. Can we put it this way? The will of God for Abraham was clearly defined. It was to get out of Ur of the Chaldees to get out of all that part, as it were, of, of an old world, of an old creation, and to get into the promised land. And he clearly told him what the prom where the promised land was and what he was to do. He was to lead him. God was going to lead him there. And when he got there, he was to stay there. Now, this land represents the will of God for Abraham. This land was to be where God, where God's Messiah was to be born. Not anywhere else in the whole world, but within the confines of this land, within the boundaries of this land. This was the land in which the city of God was to be built, where his name was going to be caused to dwell. Nowhere else in the whole world, not Babylon, not Egypt, not Nineveh, not Rome, not these other great cities, only Jerusalem, within the boundaries of the land. There the temple of God, the very dwelling place of God, within, as it were, the headquarters of God's government in Jerusalem, there the temple was to be built within the boundaries of that land, not outside, but within the very boundaries of that land. There the people of God were to be produced. Abraham was one man and, and, and with Sarah his wife. Two people really virtually. But out of them were to come a great nation that no one could number. The people of God were to be produced from these two. But where? In Egypt. Where? No, in the land. It was to be within the land that these people were to come into being, and they were finally to possess it. Now turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We see, therefore, that the land, the boundaries clearly defined, were the compass of God's will for Abraham. Now chapter 12 and verse 10. And there was a famine in the land. Now, isn't that extraordinary? First, God says to Abraham, get out. 
of Ur of the Chaldees, out of your father's house, out of it, all into the land. He left abundance. He left a great, a high standard of living. He left fullness. He left everything. He went into the land, and he was no sooner within the land than, and this is the remarkable thing, a famine struck the whole land. And what happened to Abraham? Well, I'm quite sure that Abraham and Sarah had a good talk about it. And uh, no doubt, Abraham said to begin with, well, dear, this is God's will for us here. I mean, he's bound to provide. Something's got to happen. Perhaps it'll only last a week or two. We've got provisions to get through. We'll kill some of the sheep or uh, goats and we'll be all right. So it seemed as if everything was okay. But uh, after a month went by, perhaps two months went by, and the very flocks began to die. Then I no doubt Sarah said to Abraham, you know, dear, do you think really the Lord means us to stay here to suffer? After all, I mean, when there's not a lot and we can't even get any food, doesn't it seem obvious that it's God's will for us to shift? I mean, to move. I've got an awful lot. I heard somebody saying the other day, down in Egypt, it's got a tremendous amount down there and a marvelous time down there. Fullness on every side. So Abraham pondered, well, yeah, I don't think so. God never included Egypt when he said, get ye out of here, of the camp. But he went away and thought. And he saw everyone getting thin. And he saw his beloved wife beginning to get thin. And he didn't have a mirror, so he couldn't see whether he himself was getting thin. <laughs> but no doubt people said, you're getting very thin, Abraham. And he began to worry about it. And began to think, well, now listen, here is a theological problem. God has told me to come into this land. But look at this famine. Now this famine is obviously under the sovereignty of God. It's part of the government of God. Now do I stay here or am I sensible and get out to where there's fullness? So Abraham said, well, get out. And so Sarah said, dear, I thought you'd say that. That's just what we should do. Down they went to Egypt and they ended up in a first-class situation. Abraham had to lie left, right and center to cover the whole thing up. They got themselves into a fearful. Yes, they had food. My word, they had food. They were in Pharaoh's house. And there was Sarah smuggling out all the dainties and the morsels from Pharaoh's table, seeing that Abraham was having a marvelous time. They had all the food they wanted. They had, there were no scarcity, no famine, no pressure, no conflict, but they were absolutely outside of the will of God. Now, you see, if you turn to the psalm in the light of that experience, we can't stay any more on it. You read Psalm 37 and verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. This is the authorized version now. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Trust in the Lord and do good. You see, when you are certain that you're not outside the will of God, that you're, you're obeying him everything, and famine comes, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Now, the revised version puts it like this. It's just as wonderful. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. And feed on his faithfulness. Feed on his faithfulness. In other words, the faithfulness of God will make a provision for you. Dwell in the land. Don't get out. Don't get out. Don't move. Stay. Remain. And feed on his faithfulness. The provision of God for you will be there. Yes, dear friend, the provision of God will be for you there. 
trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Well, where is the authorized version or the revised version or the American Standard Version or whatever it is? Every rendering of this glorious verse is wonderful. It doesn't matter what way you look at it, it all comes back to the same thing. Stick it out. Comes back to that. Stick it out in the land. Stick it out there. Stay within the will of God. And you will find that his faithfulness will keep you alive. You'll come through that experience with more than you ever had before. You let those go down to Egypt and have a wonderful time and they'll come back and tell you, oh, we've had a wonderful time in Egypt. Oh, simply marvelous. But my dear friend, they haven't got what you've got. All their supplies were apparent supplies. They were in one sense, uh, well, they didn't require a sovereign intervention of God. But you've had an experience that you cannot understand. Everything was barren, everything was a wilderness weather, and you're alive. And more than alive, you've come through with an experience of God. No one can ever take away. From then on, from now on, you won't run when famine comes. You discover that your God is able to meet you by resources that are not apparent. That's a wonderful thing. Well, uh, someone says, you know, I think perhaps you're going a little too far. Well, all right, Psalm 37, verse 19, as if, uh, as if the psalmist is just trying to underline it. They shall not be put to shame in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. In the days of famine they shall be satisfied. Psalm 33, verse 19. This is in the whole, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. You see? When God tells you to do something and you do it and you keep within his will and there comes a famine, it's all right. God will satisfy you in the famine. God will keep you alive in the famine. He won't send you off to Egypt to sort of get around it, around the difficulty. He will keep you there. Now, I very much love um, what Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 17. And it's a thing I think sometimes some people overlook. In fact, I was very tempted the other day to make a long list of the things that remain with us when we are saved. And I shall do one uh, Sunday, perhaps, uh, just so that we are a little more level-headed when it comes to really seeking for much more on the Lord. Now... Jeremiah 17, verse 8. Is it verse 7? Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose trust the Lord is. Or he shall be as a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out its roots by the river. Oh, that's abundance, isn't it? No famine there. That's, uh, and shall not fear when he cometh, but its leaves shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of life. Most people overlook that. So the very rivers of living water can dry up sometimes, can they? Can there be, for the man who trusts in the Lord, a year of drought? Well, what does God's word say? It says, shall not be careful. 
Should not worry. Should not be anxiety-ridden in the day, in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. There is a glorious picture of a tree when all the rivers have dried up and it doesn't cease bearing fruit. Now that is a miracle. And if Abraham had stayed in the land, he would have been the subject of a miracle. Just as later on, Isaac was a miracle. The birth of Isaac was a miracle. And the giving back of Isaac was a miracle. So, there would have been another miracle. Now, there are many other illustrations in the Bible. We cannot stay with them. But I'm going to give them to you because I, very swiftly, just mention them. Most of you will know them anyway. You can... Um, look them up yourself. I'll give you these scripture verses. In Genesis 26 and verse 1, we have another famine within the will of God. This time we read, um, and there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Verse 2, and the Lord appeared unto Isaac and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these lands, and I, and I will establish the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father, and so on. There are another famine within the will of God, and this time Isaac was told, don't go down into Egypt. Now we turn over to a lovely story in Ruth. You turn to the little book of Ruth. And what do we read in the first verse of the first chapter? Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land. Now what is the reaction of, um, of Elimelech and Naomi? They didn't dwell in the land. But they went down into the land of the Moabites. And what was the result of it? Well, I think you all know the story, the tragedy that resulted. First Naomi's husband died, the two girls married unbelievers, uh, and both, uh, I'm sorry, the two sons married unbelievers, and both the sons died. You know the story. They got out of the will of God because there was famine in the land, and they felt, well, surely it can't be right that this, this famine must be an indication that we have to go where we can find food. And so they went down into this other um, land, the land of Moab. And the story is a wonderful story of the grace of God. When the path is confessed and forgiven, Naomi says, I will return. And she not only returns, but Ruth, her Moabitess daughter, she returns too with her and out of Ruth comes King David which is a wonderful story of the sovereignty of God when sometimes we get out of the will of God and when it is confessed that all of us are frail all of us are human and when a famine a spiritual famine comes to us within the will of God we are tempted and pressed to get out of it well even if you have got out of it even if I get out of it you get out of it if once it's confessed even though there may be a chastening once it's confessed, you know what the Lord does. He so wonderfully turns it to his glory that when we look back, we, we can't help feeling that going out of the land must have been part of his will. Why, when Ruth later on, she must have said, well, 
Mother, I'm so glad that you disobeyed the word of God. Because you went down into the land of Moab and I'm here now as a result of it. And King David was the, the long-term result. Then, if you turn to 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 17, you have the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah was within the will of God, surely. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the sojourners of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before jo the Jordan, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Now just supposing that Elijah had said, Now, Lord, there's a famine in the land, it's definitely coming, it's a judgment upon Ahab. Now I, I must get out. I'll go to Babylon, or I'll go to Syria, or I'll go to Egypt. He would have lost out completely. But not only would he have lost out, he would have, he would have missed a tremendous experience. I mean, fancy having a flock of ravens uh, waiting on him hand and foot. It was a tremendous experience. No, you smile, but just think. Just think. Three meals a day, and there they flocked in from the... With, with, um, uh, with all the food he required. The water never dr uh, dried up. It never dried up until it was God's will. There came a day when the brook dried up and the ravens didn't come. And evidently uh, um, uh, Elijah looked round and waited for his meal and the ravens never came. He thought that's rather strange. And he asked the Lord, now Lord, what's the next thing? The ravens haven't turned up this morning. And the Lord said to him, you are to go to Zarita and you'll find a widow there. Now, when you get there, I'll tell you what next to do. So, we come to our next little story, which is the widow of Zarephath, which is from verse 8 or 9 to um, 16. And it's a wonderful story. There she was, dear woman. She was also within the land. And she, was, she said to Elijah, when he said, give me something to eat, she said, I'm very sorry. I really... And I, I, I'm unable to. Uh, I'm just about to burn these few sticks. They're the last ones I've got. Cook a little um, uh, cake. And my son and I are going to eat it and then die. Now that's a rather interesting way of looking at things, isn't it? She wasn't running off to Egypt. She said evidently in her heart she felt that was the will of God for her to stay there. And if it meant dying, all right. She would stay there and die. And uh, the prophet said to her, well, um, <clears throat> he must have sounded very, very selfish, but he said, well, uh, if you don't mind, I'll have that cake. <laughs> oh, she said, well, all right, all right, you'll have the cake. I mean, I'm going to die anyway. <laughs> I die a few hours earlier, that's all. So she cooked the cake for him and gave it to the prophet. It's as simple as that. And then the miracle happened. For the prophet said to her to go, and every time she went to that barrel of meal, there was something in the bottom. Now, now, don't get it wrong. There wasn't, she didn't sort of say, oh, Elijah, just look at that barrel. You can see the stuff rolling over the edge. 
No, she went up to the barrel and looked right in it, and there was a little handful. Every day, isn't it almost amusing? As if the Lord has great humor. She scraped together just a little at the bottom, the last bit, and cooked it. And then she came again, and she had to scrape it together. Never did the Lord sort of put a foot or two of it at the bottom, so she had a whole two-day supply. She had to scrape it together. Now, there is a picture of famine, you see, within the will of God. Isn't it interesting? It was there, they kept alive. So it says, the jar of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord. Uh, which he spake by Elijah. Now there are some illustrations. I could give you a lot of scriptures too. Well, there are many scriptures that um, explain these things, but I'll just quote them to you and you can take them away. There's um, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You've been put to grief in manifold trials. What, what is it for? That the trial of your faith being more precious than of gold which perishes may redound unto glory and praise and honor at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Here then, famine is part of trials that come to us, which are, as it were, proving things, to testing things. Then again, James 1, um, 2, and 2 to 4. It now, now mark the words. Count it all joy, brethren when ye fall into manifold trials. Count it all joy. Don't run away from the famine. Say, praise the Lord, there's a famine coming. I'm going to discover the Lord in a new way in this famine. Don't think that somehow or other you've just got to run away from it. That's no spirit. That's not the way to find the Lord. Praise the Lord and stick at it. And you'll find that God will do something for you. Well, what does it say? It says that tribulation worketh patience, you see. And here in James uh, 1, it says this, your faith, the proving of your faith, the trial of your faith, worketh patience. And that patience have it, its perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. There's what a famine's for, you see. God wants you to be really full, perfect and entire. If you run away from the, from the famine, you won't ever have an experience of being perfect and entire. Then again, if you turn to Romans chapter 5, 3 and 4, you'll find another little um, light, it's more light thrown on this subject. What it says, and we also rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh steadfastness or patience and patience of provedness and so on and so on. So you've got it all here. And then, if you turn to Romans 8, a chapter which I'm afraid is sometimes rather misconstrued. It says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? 37, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, that is a most interesting thing. It's often misconstrued and misunderstood. People think that the Lord delivers you from them so that you have no experience of them. But it, nay, in, in all these things, in tribulation, in anguish, 
in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in Oh, just wait, Lord, this is wrong, this is wrong. Hasn't the Lord said we're not to pray about our clothing, that he takes care of us, he will clothe us? Surely it's wrong to, to be in an experience of nakedness. Surely it's wrong to be in, in, in an experience of anguish. When it says that uh, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy, anguish. All these things, there's a paradox. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. So the apostle Peter sums it up like this in his uh, letter, his first letter, chapter 5, and verse uh, Ten, which I always thought was rather like a, a douse of cold water. Um, and the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ. Now that's marvellous. After that ye have suffered a little while. Shall himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. Now there's a realist talking. After that ye have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect. And you know what the word means? Complete. Mature, perfect, then goes on, establish, strengthen you. Well, now we must sum up and close. Can we say what is the purpose of famine? I have noted down six things. I'm going to make no comment on them, just read these six things out as a summary of what I've said. What is the purpose of such an experience uh, it, when we are within the will of God? First, to discover inward spiritual and permanent resources in Christ. Not from without, but from within. We discover that we can stay in the land of famine because we've got inward resources. We don't have to run off to meetings, run off to this, run off to the other, fasten ourselves to something outside. But it's within inward resources and permanent one, inward spiritual and permanent resources. Secondly, to wean us away from the superficial, the external, the appearances of things. Famine has a marvelous way of doing that. It just makes you wonder, what is this land of promise? Look at it, land flowing with milk and honey. It's as barren as a desert, dry and brown, there's not a bird chirping, there's nothing in it. What's the point of it? What's the point of it? Thirdly, to break the self-life. And if anyone tells me that you can break the self-life by some exhilarating experience, come and have a talk. <laughs> the only way the self-life can be broken is by a long and terrible, uh, 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 and often only by degrees, a way. I remember what he once said of a friend in Denmark when he saw her to another friend of mine. Oh, I tremble, he said, what that sister must go through before her strength of will is broken. Famine is one of the surest ways of breaking the self-life. Fourthly, to make us stable, steadfast, unmovable. When a person's all the time running because of outward things, uh, they'll never become steadfast. But when they have discovered those inward resources, they become unmovable. They'll stick it out. Fifthly, to bring us into enlargement. Yes, the way of true enlargement lies often through a famine or a winter. Summer, come through winter. And lastly, 
to test us as to whether we really mean business. Whether what we profess is what we possess. People talk so easily about what they understand to be the church, church ground, the purpose of God, the will of God, and all these great things, and then whoosh, they're gone. Like birds of migration. They're just gone. They're off to warmer climates and left us to the wintry fog of yet another <coughs> winter. No, it's to test us as to what really is inside and whether what we pro profess is what we possess. Shall we? May our God be your satisfaction in times of plenty and times of famine. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus. Wow.